Hello, and welcome to my second Q&A discussion session. As in the previous session, I got a few of my students together to discuss questions sent to me by some of you, my listeners. Joining me on this day were Rachel Field, Trevor Williams, and Tessa Fox. Rachel starts us off with the first question. Does Aragorn really foretell the future at some points, and how does that work? Well, there are a couple passages where Aragorn clearly appears to foretell the future. And the question, I guess, is really, does he actually have some kind of prophetic vision of the future? The two instances um, that come immediately to my mind anyway are, one, the prediction he gives to Gandalf before they enter Moria. I say to you, if you enter the gates of Moria, beware, right? And then afterwards sort of looking back on it, right after they escaped. Ah, oh, Gandalf, did I not tell you if you enter the gates of Moria, beware, alas, that I spoke truly. And the way that he comments on that is kind of interesting. You know, he's not saying, like, see, I prophesied this, and I knew all along that this would happen. It's clearly like, I had a creepy feeling that something bad was going to happen to him if we went in. So he has some kind of sense, but it's clearly a bit vague. Alas, that I spoke true shows that he wasn't 100% sure it was actually going to pan out, but he was definitely making a prediction, which definitely did come true. Um, the other instance, of course, is when he says to Aemir, when he's going to the path of the dead, and Aemir's like, oh, that's really bad because everybody dies who goes there, and I'd hope that we'd ride to battle together, and now you're riding the path of the dead. And, and he says, we shall meet again, though all the hosts of Mordor lie between us. And then again, like, when it happens, he recalls it again. He's like, did I not say? <laughs> yeah, so he's always kind of not only predicting the future, but then rubbing it in afterwards. That's so sort of the pattern you can see. And Amir's response then, he says, yeah, you did say that. He says, but I knew not then that you were a man foresighted. Which is interesting, because that sort of suggests then that Amir has this concept that there are some people who have foresight. And he just didn't realize that Aragorn was one of them. Because there was a much more specific prophecy than the first one. It's not just like, I have a feeling something bad's going to happen to Gandalf, but a much more precise, we will definitely meet again. He speaks that very, very firmly. It's not just a vague warning, but I predict that we will meet again. And at least something that's exactly where, but something of the circumstances of that, right? Though all the hosts of Mordor lie between us. But he's still a bit unclear. Anyway, so Aemir pegs him as one of these foresighted men. These impulses just kind of seem to come to Aragorn. And one of the interesting things to note is that they come to his parents, too. Actually, his grandparents. Apparently, it's like a dunodyne. They do this kind of thing all the time. Appendix A, in the beginning of the story of Aragorn and Arwen, this is in the discussion of whether or not Aragorn's parents should get married, because his mom was pretty young, and his dad was much older than she. So Aragorn's mom, Gilrein, is the daughter of Deerhile, that's her dad. And her dad opposes the marriage of Aragorn's mom and dad. She had not reached the age at which the women of the Dúnedain were accustomed to marry. Moreover, he said, Arathorn is a stern man of full age and will be chieftain sooner than men looked for. Yet my heart forebodes that he will be short-lived. So notice he's predicting the deaths of the next two chieftains, like of the current chieftain, he's going to be chieftain soon, and he's going to die shortly, too. But Ivorwen, his wife, so this is... Aragorn's maternal grandmother now, who was also foresighted, answered, The more need of haste, the days are darkening before the storm, and great things are to come. If these two wed now, hope may be born for our people, but if they delay, it will not come while this age lasts. And so they got married. You know, like the one prophecy outweighs the other, and then his mom is prophetic too. But this is not clearly just a genetic thing. He comes from a line of prophetic people, and all of his family are foresighted, and so he does it too. I guess in some ways I would connect this with magic, and the way that magic in Tolkien tends to be kind of vague, I guess. You know, circumstantial at times. <laughs> yeah, yeah, diluted anyway. Not spell casting and stuff like that, but just sort of a part of the power, the presence, the will of powerful people. And so this ability to have some glimmer of what's going to happen and to be able to foretell it. This seems to be part of just something that these great people, and it just sort of happens. But also this sense of which it comes upon them seems to give it a kind of a supernatural air as well. It's not just a product of their personal will and awesomeness, but this foresight comes upon him and he just sort of knows it and he doesn't know how he knows it. But it definitely happens. I mean, I think there's no question that he actually does make bona fide predictions that come true. So, um, would it be like a Mandos kind of thing? I mean, it's not as clear-cut as Mandos saying, hey, wait a sec, you know, I have this, <laughs> right. I have something to say, but is, would he be the one that kind of 
gives them this inspiration. It seems possible. I mean, Mandos is the doomsman of the Valar. Probably my favorite moment <laughs> is right after the dramatic, indeed the melodramatic statement that Feanor <laughs> makes when he refuses to give the Silmarils, and he's like, then I shall be slain, first of all, the elves in Amon, and he's like, not the first. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, uh, now that, of course, is not prophecy. It's already happened, and he knows it, nobody else knows it. Right. But yeah, he does. I mean, certainly, there are a couple instances where the Valor are making a decision about things to come, and they're going to consult Mandos, because he's the best one to do that. Now, of course, one of the main differences there is that Mandos, his two main functions, well, sort of three things that he does. One is memory. He forgets nothing. Two is that he does foresee and prophesy and do things like lay the curse on the Noldor. But then also he's the doomsman. He's the one who passes judgment also. And I think that those things are clearly related in, I think, some kind of interesting ways. He's related to past, present, and future in that sense in some way just sort of with knowledge generally if we are assuming any kind of connection with the Valar in this sort of inspiration that comes upon people it certainly certainly smells like Mandos <laughs> if, if you know we have no we have no textual evidence that it's actually Mandos intervening or anything but it certainly is a what would the adjective form be Mandosian kind of thing to do <laughs> yeah <laughs> so my question would be are there other people who prophesy, or is it just Aragorn? Let me see. I'm trying to think of other examples. I feel like Gandalf had a weird feeling when they were going into Moria as well, or at least he really didn't want to. Mm. So he might have known something was up. Mm. Mm. It's interesting, though mostly irrelevant. When they refer to this in the movies, of course, Aragorn doesn't make the prophetic statement. They transplant it you remember to Saruman? Like Saruman, yeah. And Saruman is like, Gandalf, you know, you are afraid to go in there, Gandalf. You know what lies in there. And so we have Saruman seeing what's going on and predicting what's going to happen, but also projecting onto Gandalf knowledge of the future. And it's kind of interesting and kind of cool, I think, actually, to conceive of Gandalf knowing that if he goes into Moria, he's going to be killed by the Balrog, and yet going anyway, like that would be like a pretty cool Gandalfian thing to do, but anyway, of course, I mean, it diminishes Aragorn, which, of course, the film is in the business of doing most of the time, but... Oh, isn't it? Noted. Yeah, sure. it totally is. <laughs> that's totally fair. I, I think it's totally no, fair. Yeah. But anyway, and not that that's a criticism, that's just the direction they go, and that's fine. Well, did Aragorn know that there is a Balrog there? I mean, I know Saruman had opened up his book, and he had a big book of Balrogs or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, yeah, when you stop and think about his book there in the movie, it's a little bit strange. Like The uh, Middle-Earth Picture Book of Balrogs. Yeah. <laughs> or like, I mean, what is this, some kind of an illustrated encyclopedia? Like, you know, Gandalf, what awaits you? I'm chapter four. <laughs> look up what awaits Gandalf in the encyclopedia. Ah, Maybe yes. it's a copy of The Lord of the Rings. Ooh! <laughs> yeah. You know, that actually is kind of attractive. You know, there's some thinking of all the different, like, you know, versions of the story that are out there, you know, that Saruman has one. It seems like in the movie, of course, if they have him associated with books and looking in books on several occasions, like when he, much more plausibly, later on when Wormtongue comes in and is telling him about Aragorn and he goes to look up the ring and he finds the picture of the ring that Aragorn's wearing. Now that at least is like, okay, I've got a book of reference of, I don't know what the book of reference is, like artifacts of the first age or something. <laughs> mm, I suspect that sounds like the ring of Barahir. Ah, oh, yeah, a picture of the ring of Barahir. That's totally what it is. That at least makes some sense. I don't know what he's doing with the book, with the Balrog. Like, let me look at spooky pictures of Balrog. <laughs> Poor dramatic effect. It doesn't really bear much scrutiny when you really look at it. But anyway, it is interesting, the suggestion or implication that Gandalf knows full well what is there and what is going to happen or what is very, very likely anyway to happen. Whereas, of course, it's reasonably clear in the book, you know, it's quite clear in the book that Gandalf doesn't know that it's a Balrog. They kind of suspect what it might be, but... They know it's something really bad, but they, they doesn't know exactly. The, the, it's not until he comes, even you know, he meets him up in up in the room and fights him the first time, and, and still doesn't know what it is until he shows up at the bridge, and then he's like, ah, yeah, right. But anyway, still back to the other question. Anyone else who predicts? Well, Galadriel has some knowledge. Thinking about her mirror is sort of interesting in this regard because she says the mirror can reveal. But her relationship with the mirror is a little bit odd. Like, she doesn't say, 
it's not like this is the instrument I use, you know, like it's a wand or crystal ball or something like that. But she says, this is the magic of Galadriel, right? So, you know, when she's talking to Sam about the whole what is magic thing, this, if you like, is the magic of Galadriel. And yet she doesn't seem to be really in control of it. It's not like the thing through which she issues her prophecies. She says it will show you things unbidden. And it, she even seems to imply that, you know, that she looks in it and learns things that she didn't know before. So it's not really clear that this is just sort of how she foretells that, well, you know, like that it's like a Palantir or something, right? That is, you know, the, the instrument by which her mind can reach forward or something. It seems to have been somehow given some kind of independent agency in what it shows by her, presumably, but not totally under her control. So anyway, she clearly has some sense of what's to come. Arwen, Arwen does. I think it's in the appendix. Of course it's in the appendix, because she only says one thing (laughs) in the whole Lord of the Rings. Uh, That is the conversation she has with Frodo after their wedding, when she gives him the jewel, her only spoken line in the entire Lord of the Rings. She gets more lines in the appendices, but... Well, but she had to take Frodo, you know, over the river and into Rivendell. That was... <laughs> get the attractive slash on her face. Right, she right, had to do exactly. that, too. I love the beauty slash. That's, uh, that's it's one of my favorites. It's pretty hardcore. Yeah. It just shows you how rugged... She's not just... She's really rugged, she's, yeah. she's, she's, she's a rugged butt kicker in addition to being fabulously beautiful and, and powerful and everything. It's, it's pretty cool. But anyway, in the appendices, she does or have some sort of prediction of what's going to happen, kind of along the lines of Aragorn's mom and Aragorn's grandparents and sort of what they are going to face and the decisions that they're going to make. One could interpret the things that she says about overcoming the shadow as mere confidence, just a kind of pep talk and not an actual prediction, but it seems to be that she has some sense of what's going to happen and what their fates are going to be. Does a Legolas ever show any signs of foresight? He foresees his own... Departure, though, I guess it's like more or less inevitable and so pretty easy prediction. But there's this sense in which he speaks of the future, but not in the really specific way that Aragorn does. It's more in the sense of like, I am an elf and I have the sense that all of the elves have that the firstborn are dwindling and that the time will come. You know, I'm thinking of the conversation he has with Gimli in The Return of the King, where Gimli talks about Minas Tirith and how much he admires it and its architecture but says, well, the, old, the good stonework is the older, and clearly the craft of the man is decaying over time. And he makes this pessimistic statement about, how oh, I guess it will always be so with the things of men. You know, they fail of their promise. And, and then Legolas says, but rarely do they fail of their seed, and, and says the works of men will outlive us, Gimli. And again, that's not exactly an Aragorn-ish prediction, in the sense of, we shall meet again, though all the hosts of Mordor lie between us. But it's also a little bit more than just, I have a vague, elvish sense that we are in decline and the age of man is coming. It seems a little bit more sort of pointed than that. Well, I was going to ask, because since it seems to be possibly a Dunedain thing, sometimes if it was connected with the elves, but their foresight may also just be having to do with living for a really long time and seeing patterns yeah. <laughs> thousands <Yeah>. of years. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The movies seem to really lean on that. Like There's a whole yeah, thing in the movie do. that I don't remember being in the books, I'm not sure, with Elrond, and Arwen goes up to him in the movie and says, you know, you have the power of foresight, but I don't know if I remember that in the book. He doesn't, in The Lord of the Rings, make any of the kinds of predictions that Aragorn does, though he is connected... I mean, I think of probably the biggest moment when Frodo volunteers to take the ring. And he says, if I understand aright all that I have heard, I believe that this task is appointed for you, Frodo. That's not a prediction of the future. But it's also a little bit more concrete than, like, I am getting the vague and squishy feeling that you are the chosen one, Frodo. Like, he's not saying that either. Trevor, it sounds more like what you said. If I understand aright all that I have heard, which, remember, goes back from his own personal introduction from the first age onward of the history of Sauron and the Ring down to Bilbo and Frodo's story of what has happened in the last few decades and days. So he's saying, like, thinking back of all the patterns and everything that I've seen, the trend that appears, to, you know, if, if I am perceiving correctly the trend, I think that this is it. This seems to be the direction in which this story is going, and I have this understanding of the larger kind of narrative of history. And that 
seems to be even in some ways the way that the Valar tend to think. I think of when in the chapter at the beginning of the Silmarillion about Ale and Yavanna, the one about the dwarves especially, but also the ants, when Yavanna goes to Manwe, and it's like, Ale gets dwarves. <laughs> I want some too. Dwarves, but something. Manwe's decision process, right? He sort of re-enters the song for a second. and But I mean, basically the question that he's asking is, does this fit the pattern? Is this right? Is this according to the song? Is this according to the themes? Does it fit? And then he's like, yeah, yeah, it does. And Yovana, remember, makes that argument. She suggests that there should be some trees which can walk around and thump on people. And he says, that's a strange thought. And she says, but it was in the song, right? It's part of the whole picture. And then he thinks about it and is like, yeah, 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 it was. And so it seems that that's kind of like what Elrond is doing there. And so in some sense, I think that that's not less than the kind of prediction that Aragorn's doing. I think it's more than the kind of prediction that Aragorn is doing. Thinking back to the whole mythology, the reason that predictions like this would work, should work, is that the whole story of Middle-earth has already been pre-sung. The song, the great music at the beginning, contains not only the whole world, but all of history. Everything was foresung and foreseen in the vision, almost all foreseen in the vision, not quite all of it. Eru cuts the vision off before it gets to the dominion of men. But anyway, all this stuff has been (laughs) foreseen by the Valar and now has to be brought to pass. So to have some kind of a sense of the future is really just to kind of be in tune with that part of the music again, which is again really only one tiny little slice of what Elrond is doing in a much bigger sense and what Manway is doing in a far more transcendent, like literally transcendent, you know, he has that little sort of ecstatic vision and perceives parts of the song that he hadn't ever understood before and everything in that moment. But that seems to kind of fit together. So that's how it seems, I think, that we're supposed to be understanding these kinds of predictions. Yeah, that connects to a question that I kind of wanted to ask, which is, is there any connection with the future-telling thing and with the idea that comes up again and again, especially in the Lord of the Rings, about the suggestion that there is like a direction to events, forces behind events, moving it toward a certain conclusion. Yeah. Yeah, and I think definitely, I mean, whenever you have prediction, one of the questions, one of the philosophical questions that it immediately raises is fate, right? I mean, okay, I mean, it's like the old Boethius question, right? If you have 100% certain foreknowledge of something that's going to happen, then that must happen, and it can't not happen, and therefore the people who do it are not free to choose, right? I mean, that's the classic Boethian articulation of the fate and free will problem. And I think I've said before, and we'll say again in more detail someday, I'm going to sit down and do my full Tolkien Boethius thing, because I think that Tolkien follows Boethius's solution to this problem pretty closely, I think. Actually, I'm probably going to end up talking about this some anyway in the talk that I'm giving in Wales in August. But very briefly, the central Boethian idea, or rather the concluding Boethian idea, that these two things, foreknowledge and predestination and free will, are not exclusive, are not contradictory, is something that I think Tolkien adheres to all the way through, which we can see him most explicitly discussing in the Ainuindale at the beginning of the Silmarillion. But Tess, exactly as you say, it's something that happens kind of behind the scenes throughout the Lord of the Rings. We'll get these moments where it's clear that these things, to use the phrase that Gandalf uses that one time, were meant to happen, right? And I think that one of the ways he handles it, and he handles it so delicately, I think, one of the ways in which he handles it is to keep it so far behind the scenes. You get this general sense that the picture that is being made is the picture that was supposed to be made. But In every step along the way, you don't usually get the sense of this intrusive fate coming in, and you have very much at the foreground the free choices of the people who are doing the things, and the pretty clear sense that it could have been otherwise. They don't have to do these things, and that sometimes it was, again, to use another phrase of Gandalf's, touch and go. That's the phrase that he uses when he's talking about Frodo in the barrow, right? And he says, that was touch and go. That could have gone either way he suggests. And again, of anyone, he's one of the ones in the best position to have some kind of idea. If there is some sort of fate working through here, he's the one who most frequently says the most portentous, fate-like sounding things in the whole book. And yet, he does clearly, in moments like that, say it really mattered. In the same conversation, when he talks about Frodo's deliverance at the ford, 
He says, luck has served you, not to mention courage. Your own good choices materially contributed to your being saved. I'm pausing here for a minute because, of course, I realize I am sitting at a table with three philosophers, and so I must be careful with my terminology. I'm not sure material, materially contributed. Thinking of Aristotle, it wouldn't be a material cause. It would be an efficient cause, right? Uh, you can call whatever you want. Aristotle, <laughs> Aristotle was really annoying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Glad to have that. I thought yeah. we could turn. But anyway, so I mean, I do think that we can see that operating, but he clearly doesn't rule out either one. You know, I mean, it's not both things are operative, and of course, that's what and Lady Philosophy says in Boethius. They seem contradictory to us, but that's because of the limitations of our knowledge. They're not, to God, contradictory. And they don't seem to be contradictory to Iluvatar either. But for someone who sort of skirts this issue as often as he does, which is pretty often in his stories, he does a remarkably admirable job, I think it's pretty <laughs> admirable anyway, of not preaching about it and not harping on it. He really kind of keeps it in the background. I think that's really interesting. Okay, we should probably move on to question two. Okay. Can't spend half an hour on every question. <laughs> <laughs> so who is Goldberry? Goldberry. I want to read a couple passages for a little bit of background, and then we can sort of talk about what we see there. First, I want to read the passages from the Fellowship of the Ring where we learn most about Goldberry, because this is, of course, the place where pretty much everybody who is asking this question or wondering about this is starting from. So we meet Goldberry, of course, when we get to the house of Tom Bombadil, and the way that she's introduced is, I think, really striking and really tantalizing. I mean, I think it's this page more than any other that really sort of raises this question, what exactly is Goldberry? I mean, it might be a theoretical question anyway, but this passage makes it pretty compelling. They have heard her singing, they hear her song at the very end of the previous chapter, inviting them to come in and sing with her, and she says, enter good guests. And as she spoke, they knew that it was her clear voice they had heard singing. They came a few timid steps further into the room and began to bow low, feeling strangely surprised and awkward, like folk that, knocking at a cottage door to beg for a drink of water, have been answered by a fair young elf queen clad in living flowers. I love that simile. Like, oh, I mean, surely we can all relate to that, right? (laughs) I mean, it's a strange kind of simile in that way. I mean, it hardly renders it more familiar. It does give the imagination something to kind of latch on to, but it just doesn't work in the same way that a lot of similes kind of generally do. And then we have this image about her feet in wide vessels of green and brown earthenware. White water lilies were floating so that she seemed to be enthroned in the midst of a pool. So she's the river daughter, and when we meet her, though she's in a house on dry land, she still looks like she's sitting in the middle of the pool. She springs up lightly and over the lily bowls and ran laughing towards them. The hobbits looked at her in wonder, and she looked at each of them and smiled. Fair Lady Goldberry, said Frodo at last, feeling his heart moved with a joy that he did not understand. He stood as he had at times stood enchanted by fair elven voices, but the spell that was now laid upon him was different. Less keen and lofty was the delight, but deeper and nearer to mortal heart, marvelous and yet not strange. Fair Lady Goldberry, he said again, now the joy that was hidden in the songs we heard is made plain to me. O slender as a willow wand, O clearer than clear water, O reed by the living pool, fair river daughter, O springtime and summertime and spring again after, O wind on the waterfall and the leaves' laughter. Suddenly he stopped and stammered, overcome with surprise to hear himself saying such things. But Goldberry laughed. Welcome. I had not heard that folk of the Shire were so sweet-tongued, she says. So we have both the description of their initial reaction, like knocking on a cottage and being answered by a young elf queen, and then Frodo's reaction in his sort of spontaneous verse. He suddenly starts sort of speaking Tom Bombadil (laughs) in verse at her, and she laughs. What do you make of the first impressions we get of Goldberry? General thoughts? Well, besides the fact that we don't have much of a basis to know what a fairy queen looks like, except for maybe pointy ears. um... (laughs) Yeah, and I mean, it seems to be... The simile seems to convey, most especially, the experience of the person knocking on the door. Right, Like you knock on the door thinking that you're just going to a rustic cottage and then, oh my goodness, it's an elf queen. And the kind of awe, I mean, I think of 
the moment in Smith of Wooten Major when Smith meets the Elf Queen and is completely overwhelmed and she towers above the <laughs> spears of her warriors and everything and she is very awe-inspiring, awesome in the classic sense. So he describes that, but then at the same time, it's not just, I am feeling reverend awe in the presence of a higher being. He also says that it was, that the spell that was now laid upon him was different. Less keen and lofty was the delight, but deeper and nearer to mortal heart. Marvelous and yet not strange. The description, the comparison between that and elf song. So the differentiation, first it compares her to an elf, and to that extent, sort of sudden surprise of encountering an elf out of nowhere. But then he differentiates it. She's unlike elves in that she's less keen and lofty, or that is, the delight that is excited in him is less keen and lofty than that excited by elven singing, but deeper and nearer to mortal heart, marvelous and yet not strange. So there's both this kind of otherworldly wonder, but also something much closer his experience, something less other than the elves are? And uh, what strikes me in that discussion is the comparisons to natural beauty, to nature in particular. Yeah, yeah. I mean, of course, Tolkien sort of protests against calling elves supernatural and on fairy stories, and no, 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 they're more natural than humans are. But yeah, I mean, the sense is, like, Goldberry is more natural than elves are, even. Elves might have closer connection with the earth and with nature than humans do. But Goldberry is clearly more closely related to nature and to the earth than elves are. Not in the sense of like two people, one of whom knows something better than another, but she is clearly by her nature more closely tied to the earth. And that we can see when they wake up the next morning and it's raining. Remember what Tom says? He says, it's Goldberry's washing day and her autumn cleaning. That's what makes it rain around here. Right? And so, I mean, it's very clear that she is connected in this very fundamental, this even elemental way with nature. One of the very few things that Tolkien said in his letters about Goldberry was along those same lines. He says, Goldberry represents the actual seasonal changes in real riverlands. It's in the middle of a much longer discussion that he just kind of drops that. It's not a long discussion of Goldberry. She represents the seasonal changes. So there's a way in which he sees her clearly as this, not exactly allegorical figure, because she's not just like, I represent nature or I represent the seasons, but that she is almost like an embodiment of, well, not nature, broadly speaking, but sort of aspects of it. The other thing I wanted to read was Goldberry's first appearance. The Tom Bombadil sequence of The Fellowship of the Ring was incorporated from poems that he had written well before, The Adventures of Tom Bombadil, in which he created the character of Tom Bombadil and Goldberry. And he just transports them wholesale into The Lord of the Rings when he gets there, including several of the characters. The poem, called The Adventures of Tom Bombadil, are just about Tom going around and basically getting into trouble. He gets attacked by several creatures, including Old Man Willow and the Barrow White, but he gets out of it again. He does not have the same kind of presence. He doesn't sing things like, none has ever caught him yet for Tom, he is the master. He doesn't talk about himself in the same kind of masterly terms. And interestingly in the poem, he is sitting by the side of the withy window and leaning back against Old Man Willow. And Old Man Willow traps him, just like he traps the hobbits. And then he sings From Inside the Willow, the song which is related very closely to the song that Tom Bombadil in the Fellowship of the Ring sings to set Merry and Pippin free from Old Man Willow, but he's setting himself free. So there's not this same, like, I am completely untouchable, raindrops don't hit me, Barrow Whites run when I show up, I am completely, utterly unassailable. He gets out of everything, but he has to sort of sing his way out, and it seems a little bit more touch-and-go, to use the previous phrase, than it does in the books. But interestingly, Goldberry is the first of these sort of dangers or hazards that he has to kind of get out of. Let me read a little bit. It is in the familiar Tom Bombadil meter. Old Tom in summertime walked about the meadows, gathering the buttercups, running after shadows, tickling the bumblebees that buzzed upon the flowers, sitting by the waterside for hours upon hours. There his beard dangled long down into the water. Up came Goldberry, the river woman's daughter, pulled Tom's hanging hair. In he went a-wallowing, under the water lilies, bubbling and a-swallowing. Hey, Tom Bombadil, whither are you going? 
said Fair Goldberry. Bubbles you are blowing, frightening the finny fish and the brown water rat, startling the dab chicks and drowning your feather hat. So she pulls him into the water by his beard and then taunts him after he's in the, <laughs> after he's in the river. You bring it back again. There's a pretty maiden, said Tom Bombadil. I do not care for waiting. Go down, sleep again, where the pools are shady. Far below willow roots, little water lady. Back to her mother's house in the deepest hollow swam young Goldberry, but Tom he would not follow. On knotted willow roots he sat in sunny weather, drying his yellow boots and his draggled feather. Uh, and that's when he meets the willow man. So first he overcomes her, and he commands her to go to sleep like he commands... The willow, in fact, all of them he makes go to sleep. There's also some badgers. There's a brief reference in The Fellowship of the Ring to he's telling a story about badgers and their funny ways. Badgers are the other ones who come after him, in addition to Goldberry, Old Man, Willow, and the Barrow White. But anyway, after these four adventures that he has, then Tom later on is sort of uh, thinking things over and kind of goes back in his mind to Goldberry. Wise old Bombadil, he was a wary fellow. Bright blue his jacket was, and his boots were yellow. None ever caught old Tom in upland or in dingle, walking the forest paths or by the withy window, or out on the lily pools in boat upon the water. But one day, Tom, he went and caught the river daughter, in green gown, flowing hair, sitting in the rushes, singing old water songs to birds upon the bushes. He caught her, he held her fast, water rats went scuttling. Reeds hissed, herons cried, and her heart was fluttering. Said Tom Bombadil, here's my pretty maiden, you shall come home with me, the table is all laden. Yellow cream, honeycomb, white bread and butter, roses at the window sill, peeping round the shutter. You shall come under hill, never mind your mother, in her deep weedy pool, there you'll find no lover. Old Tom Bombadil had a merry wedding, crowned all with buttercups, hat and feather shedding. His bride with forget-me-nots and flag-lilies for garland, was robed all in silver green. He sang like a starling hummed like a honeybee, lilted to the fiddle, clasping his river maid about her slender middle. And thus they were married. Now, if you go back and reread the Fellowship of the Ring section, you'll hear lines from that which get incorporated at various points in the Tom Bombadil chapters. In fact, if you know the Fellowship of the Ring really well, and then you go and you read the Tom Bombadil poem for the first time, you may have an experience that's kind of like the one that I had when I first saw the films for the first time, and I kept recognizing lines which were taken from the book but transplanted into like weird and random places like mm. particularly the moment at the end of right at the end of what is now part one of the extended edition DVDs at the end of the Council of Elrond when Aragorn comes up to him and says the line that Aragorn says to Frodo in Bree and then Gandalf comes up to him and says the line that he says to Frodo back in chapter two it felt like a montage the first time I was watching it it was just a really strange experience the same thing kind of happens here there are some of these lines that are taken just word for word yellow cream honeycomb white bread and butter this is what he says when he's inviting the hobbits into dinner this is what he serves the hobbits for dinner not what he's i guess in context sort of enticing her back like hey don't you want to come and marry me i've got bread and butter and cream and, uh, yeah exactly sweet spread laid out for me it's gonna be awesome and, you know, so, <laughs> it is kind of funny and he sings the song that he sings about goldberry when he found her is very closely related to the original poem with some significant differences. By that pool long ago I found the river daughter, fair young Goldberry sitting in the rushes. Sweet was her singing then, and her heart was beating. Which is different from her fluttering heart, because she's terrified because he just pounced on her, and is holding right, her down yeah. and saying, marry me! <laughs> uh, so, which is a very different dynamic. She <laughs> did try to drown him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Clearly they have the rough and tumble physical relationship from the beginning, and she starts it. It really <laughs> So, you know, I guess turnabout is fair play or something. I don't even know. <laughs> it is very different and very funny. What do you think? Does hearing the original poem help or not help? It makes it creepy. Now I like. I don't like Tom Bombadil. He's like a stalker rapist who runs around in streams and pulls like naiads and dryads out, and is like, "I've got honeycomb." <laughs> Check out my bread and butter. <laughs> don't look at the white van. It's just it's like, oh my god. <laughs> and the line about her mother. Right. Yeah, well, that's just confusing. <laughs> Who is her mother? Yeah, well, especially... Or is it the river? Did he say the river woman's daughter in the poem? Like, uh, Yeah. 
Yeah. I think that is very interesting, the whole river daughter thing. Yeah. I don't know. Well, I mean, and that is a most repeated description of Goldberry. Mm -hmm. The river daughter, or the river woman's daughter. And I realized for a long time I had attached to that phrase a masculine river image. Me too. And I think (laughs) I blame C.S. Lewis because of the god of the river. Well, yeah, and it's in Greek mythology, rivers are usually male, aren't they? Yeah, exactly. And so I think the image of the river god at the ford of Bruinen who breaks the bridge in Prince Caspian, that I think is the unexamined image I had lurking whenever I heard the river daughter or the daughter of the river. Hmm. But it's clearly the river woman's daughter. And of course that's made more clear in the original poem with all the references to her mom. Now, of course, she's not just a stalker. And it's not really (laughs) like, you know, enticing children away from the playground with candy, uh, (laughs) as you seem to be suggesting. (laughs) Of course, part of it is also, I mean, thinking, as you said, of Greek mythology, I mean, think about the times where you have to pounce on something and hold it down no matter how it tries to escape and change form until it will either grant you a wish. That's a pretty frequent Tamlin motif. I don't know if you know that. It's a Scottish myth. It's like Tamlin. Tamlin. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, there are lots of stories that go like that. And that's clearly the school of thought that Tom Bombadil is employing here rather than... And I think that that we're supposed to see a clear kind of turn on that from his first grabbing of her to the last line in the passage that I read, clasping his river maid round her slender middle, that the clasping post-wedding and the clasping pre-wedding are clearly... There's a change in the quality of the clasping that's going on, and I think it's supposed to be less creepy the second time. Well, we could also possibly... I mean, despite the fact that he has a beard, they're they're kind of childlike in some ways. It's almost like a, you know, kids who have a crush on each other, you know, are kind of beating it up, you know, you know, throwing mud in each other's faces and making fun of each other while they're drowning each other, stuff like that. Yes, actually, it reminds me of elementary school stories. You know, she wants me to marry her. How did you know? Because she pushed me over on the playground. You know, it's, 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 so, yeah. That's I mean, the best I, way to tell. I can see, yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly, yeah. I can see that. No, this thing which happened not too long ago <laughs> in my family. But anyway, no, it's... So, I'm assuming so, that was one of your sons, not you and your uh, wife. Yes, that, that's right. That's right, yeah. <laughs> it is certainly supposed to be more childlike and fairy-like than stalker creepy. But I mean, the other thing is how clearly elemental she is. In The Fellowship of the Ring, we get the references to her being the river daughter, and we get that one initial image of her in dry land, surrounded by lilies. And so there's this sense, you know, she brings the river with her, even, you know, wherever she goes. But the connection with actually seeing her, I just can't avoid dreadful puns today, in her element, as we see her there at the beginning, it conveys a little bit more clearly exactly how elemental she is. And again, when we think about the autumn rain that she clearly brings in the Fellowship of the Ring to be reminded of that. But it also suggests that her significance is expanding in Tolkien's mind from this very early poem that he wrote through the Fellowship of the Ring when he reflects in his letters that snippet from that letter was taken well after the Lord of the Rings was published. And so he's clearly now thinking of her. I mean, in the poem, she doesn't sound like she represents seasonal changes. She's a little river goddess. She's a nymph. So clearly he's sort of expanding her significance, and that seems to be through her connection with Tom Bombadil. As Tom Bombadil is connected with that whole region really intimately, through her marriage to him, she, I think, has been kind of, well, not elevated exactly, but her significance has kind of changed, it seems. So. Would she basically be kind of my R? Yeah, well, in, that's... In the a, context of, I guess... Exactly. That's a great question, because see, now... This is the thing that we always have to be careful of. I've talked about this a couple of times, but I feel like I don't talk about this nearly enough. Whenever we try to answer a question like this, there are basically two different ways that we can approach it. One is to say, look at the mythology as it is most fully fleshed out by the end of his career. And to do the work which he was himself doing all the time, which was going backwards and fitting things into that fully fleshed out mythology as it became more clearly articulated. And if we were to do that... Clearly, she's a Maya of some kind, probably comparatively low-grade one. I mean, we know that there are spirits who are connected with 
natural phenomena. The biggest picture view of this probably that we get would be somebody like Almo or even Ase and Uenin who are connected with the tides and the waves upon the coast. So she, you know, at a smaller scale, is connected with the river and this land. But both of them, both Tom Bombadil and Goldberry, if seen within that structure of his mythology, have to be Ainur of some kind or other who descended into into Arda. But that's, of course, never a really fully satisfying answer to it because that's, of course, not where she comes from. She can be fitted into the mythology as he went back and fitted lots of things into the mythology, but the Goldberry that we get in the Fellowship of the Ring is like an intermediate stage where she has been taken from this funny little poem that he wrote a long time ago, and she and Tom Bombadil have been imported into this bigger world and incorporated within the bigger world, or rather the big world has been kind of made to fit it and would get people like the Barrow Whites, for instance. You know, Old Man Willow is reasonably isolated, though you know, Treebeard can contextualize Old Man Willow as he kind of does. The Barrow Whites get a place within the history of the Dunedain of the Northern Kingdom and everything else, right? So they get pretty fully, though, and again, they all come from this one little poem. So there's Tom and Goldberry, though, now in this bigger world, now part of this mythology, but still not really native to it. And then later on, again, we can go back and I could imagine if he were pushed and for some reason felt compelled to do this, that Tolkien could write a whole story of post-music of the Ainur. What did Tom and Goldberry do? And what were their movements and their affiliations? And what's their backstory? And that could be done, as he did it with some other figures. But that would be sort of the next stage. That would be to kind of say something different about them and do something different with them than he does in The Fellowship of the Ring. And I'm not sure we're called upon to do that kind of thinking. I'm not sure that that's 100% reasonable for us to do. And I think we get more to the spirit of how he just, how he uses Goldberry, that delight that is, uh, that, that is raised in Frodo and prompts him spontaneously to break into this same meter <laughs> of verse uh, when he speaks of her. It's like in that moment, Frodo, who has both feet firmly in the later world of Middle-earth, is sort of getting sucked back for a moment into the adventures of Tom Bombadil, at least as much as the other way around. And that, I think, is part of what makes Tom Bombadil and Goldberry so compelling, is that sense of the fact that they don't fully fit is what makes them so compelling and so cool, I think. Though maybe that's a cop-out, I don't know. (laughs) Is the Glorfindel in Rivendell the same guy as the Glorfindel who dies in the fall of Gondolin? If so, how is that possible? Okay. This is an example of one of those ways in which Tolkien is going back and reworking things and reintegrating things. In a, a little essay, something, I don't know, sketch that he did very, very late in his life, he was thinking about the Glorfindel problem. And he created this whole backstory, which worked because of the way that his mythology had developed as time went on. This is in volume 12 of the History of Middle-earth, called The Peoples of Middle-earth, where Christopher Tolkien gives at length the text of this thing that Tolkien wrote out. The use of the name Glorfindel in The Lord of the Rings is one of the cases of the somewhat random use of the names found in the older legends, now referred to as the Silmarillion, which escaped reconsideration in the final published form of The Lord of the Rings. In other words... It was kind of a mistake. Not exactly a mistake. He used the name on purpose, as he frequently, like he'll throw in Hurin and Turin and Baron at various places, and he's not doing that by accident. So he throws in Glorfindel, the name Glorfindel, as like a deliberate nod to the Glorfindel of the Fall of Gondolin. I mean, he could have had not fully asked himself this question, wait, wait, so am I saying that this is the same guy? or not. He goes on to explain like all of the details of how he recognizes that this is a problem. It's a linguistic problem because the name just doesn't fit into Sindarin. It's clearly a Noldor name, so like one solution would be like, oh no, this Gorfindel is a different Gorfindel who's a Sindar. He's not one of the Noldor. No, 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 that's totally not going to work because Gorfindel is not Sindarin and it doesn't work. And then he's like, oh, and furthermore, anyway, plot-wise, it's an even bigger problem. So, in thinking about the problem, he says, at any rate, what at first sight may seem the simplest solution must be abandoned. That is, that we have merely a reduplication of names, and that Glorfindel of Gondolin and Glorfindel of Rivendell were different persons. That Glorfindel of Rivendell's daddy named him after, you know, Glorfindel of old, who was awesome. (laughs) This repetition of so striking a name, though possible, would not be credible 
he says. By the way, the reason Glorfindel is so striking, it means golden-haired. Very few of the Noldor were blonde. Almost all of them were dark-haired. So he was named Glorfindel because they're like, oh my gosh, he's blonde. So that was a really unusual name, which meant something very particular and is not just going to be something which comes up a lot. No other major character in the Elvish legends as reported in the Silmarillion and the Lord of the Rings has a name borne by another Elvish person of importance. Also, it may be found that acceptance of the identity of Glorfindel of old and of the Third Age will actually explain what is said of him and improve the story. This is what Tolkien always liked to do. It's not just a question. Sometimes people, I think, will characterize this somewhat uncharitably in imagining him being like, oh man, I screwed up. i got to go back and cover my butt and think of some way to make it look like I was thinking of this all along. When really what he's doing is he sees these things as an opportunity like this to say, hey, if we think about it more, and come up with an explanation that makes it even better than it was at first. You know, this is good will come of this apparent mistake. So he goes on. When Gorfindel of Gondolin was slain, his spirit would, according to the laws established by the One, be obliged at once to return to the land of the Valar. Then he would go to Mandos and be judged, and would then remain in the halls of waiting until Manway granted him release. Elves were destined to be immortal. That is, not to die within the unknown limits decreed by the One, which at the most could be until the end of the life of the Earth as a habitable realm. Their death, by any injury to their bodies so severe that it could not be healed, and the disembodiments of their spirits, was an unnatural and grievous matter. It was therefore the duty of the Valar, by command of the One, to restore them to incarnate life if they desired. So... The fact that he comes back from the dead is, in one sense, not an exception. It's normal. Elves' lives are bound to the world, and so if your body gets killed, he separates pretty clearly the immortal spirit of the elves from their actual physical bodies, and the reconstruction of the body, the sort of the rebodying of the elves, is a comparatively trivial undertaking. It's just it's not that big of a deal. When they are released from the halls of Mandos, which doesn't always happen, doesn't always happen right away, you know, they'll usually stay in Valinor. And that's one of the ways in which Gorfindel is a little bit different. But anyway. But this restoration could be delayed by Manway if the Fea, that is the spirit, while alive, had done evil deeds and refused to repent of them, or still harbored any malice against any other person among the living. So we see Mandos having a kind of a purgatorial function here. Like, if you die with issues, you've got to get over your issues before you're going to get another body again, because Morak is going to let you go out and screw it all up again. Now... Skipping a bit. More important, Glorfindel had sacrificed his life in defending the fugitives from the wreck of Gondolin against a demon out of Thangoradrim, and so enabling Tuor and Idril, daughter of Turgon and their child Eärendil, to escape and seek refuge at the mouths of Syrian. Though he cannot have known the importance of this, and would have defended them even had they been fugitives of any rank, this deed was of vital importance to the designs of the Valar. Also notice, Tessa, the applicability there, the designs of the Valar, and how we, he sort of admits the choreography that's going on backstage there. It is therefore entirely in keeping with the general design of the Silmarillion to describe the subsequent history of Gorfindel thus. After his purging of any guilt that he had incurred in the rebellion, of the Noldor, that is, he was released from Mandos, and Manway restored him, that is, to his body. He then became again a living incarnate person, but was permitted to dwell in the Blessed Realm, for he had regained the primitive innocence and grace of the Eldar. For long years he remained in Valinor, in reunion with the Eldar who had not rebelled, and in the companionship of the Mire. To these he had now become almost an equal, for though he was an incarnate, to whom a bodily form had not made or chosen by himself was necessary, his spiritual power had been greatly enhanced by his self-sacrifice. At some time, probably early in his sojourn in Valinor, he became a follower and a friend of Aloran, Gandalf, who, as is said in the Silmarillion, had an especial love and concern for the children of Eru. So he not only when he returns, returns much more powerful, both because of his self-sacrifice and just because of the... He suggests in a different place that when they are restored... He doesn't use the word reincarnated because that sounds... raises issues that he's not wanting to talk about. Evokes an idea which is alien to what he's talking about and so would be misleading. When they're restored to their body, their bodies are more powerful anyway. So not only is he sort of equal to the Mire, but he's hanging out with Gandalf before Gandalf comes to Middle-earth. And he recalls sort of the moments when, that this is why, remember, when Frodo and Aragorn meet Glorfindel, he's looking for Gandalf. And he's one of the ones who was sent out to find Gandalf. Gandalf is late, we're wondering where he is, we know the Nine are abroad, and they might be after Gandalf, so he's coming out to, like, help his bud from way back in Valinor, <laughs> Gandalf. And one of Tolkien's first ideas, when he talked about how and when 
Glorfindel came back to Middle Earth was that he actually came over in the ship with Gandalf. You know, that like the two of them came together as a team at about year one thousand of the Third Age uh, to come in and help. But then actually he said, "No, wait, that actually doesn't make any sense because when Numenor sank beneath the sea." and the earth was made round, and Valinor was removed from the world and separated from it, that pretty much, without very special exceptions being made, puts an end to the possibility that restored to their body elves can just waltz back to Middle-earth and stuff. So he says it had to be before the fall of Numenor. It had to have been during the Second Age that Glorfindel came back. And so he speculates that probably it was around the year 1600, which is the year that the One Ring was forged, that basically he came back in order to help Gil-galad and Elrond who knew that Sauron was causing trouble and had been getting nervous about him, and then the whole One Ring scandal came out, and, you know, <laughs> they get this, I don't know exactly how they communicate, but Elrond and Gilgalad get the panicked text message from <laughs> Celebrimbor down in Holland, you know, OMG, you know, it's Sauron, and now we have to you know, hide your ring right now. And, and so anyway, they're all scared, and then... Gorfindel's like, I will go back and I'll help them. And so he even speculates that he must have sailed back on a Numenorean ship. He took the commuter hop in an elven ship to Numenor, and then the Numenoreans took him to Linden, where Gogo and Elrond were. And this is why he has no fear of the Ringwraiths, and why they just run away from him when they find him, because he is more than just a really powerful elf. He is a really powerful elf, now restored to his body in might like unto the Maiar. And now, of course, it seems to raise the question, so explain again, Elrond, why you thought he would not be a good person to send along? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, as this seems, in theory, to be kind of what he came back to do, help, you know, against Sauron and stuff, and maybe he could have been handy in one or two situations. He could have I mean, walked right into Mount Doom and nobody would have done anything. They would have just been like, oh, never mind. It's yeah. cool. At the very least, there would have been somebody else to plummet to his death with the Balrog. Because, I mean, he's, he's got like... Well, yeah, I mean, he's exactly. It's like on his resume, right? I mean, <laughs> yes. you know, excuse me, I'm an experienced self-sacrifice for Balrog's person. Uh, I'm a, like a subcontractor. But anyway, now that doesn't, of course, happen. But it really sort of emphasizes Elrond's decision again thinking back to what we were talking about earlier, the way that he's perceiving the whole pattern is saying, no, this is not how it's supposed to go. One of the most famous things that he does or accomplishes is the prophecy that he makes, here's another prophecy, about the death of the Witch King. Because he's the one who says that he shall not be slain by the hand of man. That's a big one. Yeah. Yeah. And he makes this prophecy to Aarnur, who's not yet king, but will be the last king of Gondor, after Aarnur has just faced... The Witch King in battle, well, failed to face the Witch King, tried to face the Witch King in battle, but then his horse got spooked and ran away. Although, of course, Glorfindel's horse doesn't get spooked. (laughs) Well, at least, I guess, does run away, technically, but he's supposed to do that. Anyway, so he's just trying to comfort him and saying, don't go after him, don't try to fight him again, because he's not going to fall by the hand of living man. So it is interesting that he does make that very famous high-profile prophecy. But other than that, other than the helping to convey Frodo to Rivendell and the prophecy about the Witch King, we don't get a record of a lot of what he does. I mean, presumably he was involved in a lot of things. I mean, there's a lot of what's going on in Rivendell, which we never hear the story of. It's besieged at one point, for instance. Presumably, Gorfindel was involved in defending and helping to preserve Rivendell at that point. So that is the answer. Yes. Well, again, even to say yes, in his later years, Tolkien went back and said, yeah, they're the same guy. And that's totally how it works. So that's how it works. And once again, we were out of time. Many thanks to Rachel, Trevor, and Tessa for joining me for a fun conversation. I've got several more episodes of various kinds in the pipeline here, and I hope to get more out to you soon. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.